Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 358. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. Hey, Valerie. We got a big show today. So good to get recording before the end of the month. And on today's show, we're going to be answering lots of questions, including... What do we think of infrared hair dryers? How does a store brand like Equate compare to mainstream brands? How do you properly layer a moisturizer, a sunscreen, and a foundation to avoid flakiness? And are UV LED lash extension systems safe? But first, some of our famous chit-chat. Valerie, what's going on? Stash is missing? What? What? Yeah, we can't find him. I saw him a week ago. Now it's about eight days ago. He used to come by every day and say hello. We would have a cuddle session. I would feed uh. him. He would hang out, take a nap on my lap, and then he would walk around again, checking stuff out, and then I'd let him back outside and... Just for just for new listeners, uh, Stash is a cat, not not like a homeless person that lives near your lab. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Could you imagine, <laughs> Mr. Cosmetic Chemist, if you found out me and Stash, a homeless man, were cuddling? So Stash, he's so friendly. He has such a big personality, and he's missing. And what's also a little alarming is other neighborhood cats that you usually see are missing as well. Yeah. And even my neighbor. He said, hey, have you seen the cats? A lot of them are gone. And he's been taking care of them for years. So I'm a little worried about Stashy Doodle. And Stash, if you're listening, please come back. (laughs) We miss you. Well, it's curious. I had a uh, a, a cat, uh, an alley cat, and he went missing for a few days. And then he came back and his ear was clipped. So somebody had actually caught him and trapped him, got him neutered, and then put him back out. So, Do you think I should call the local shelters? Uh, I mean, that's one possibility. Maybe they had a program to pick up the, the feral cats. And, you know, it, especially if he's very friendly, they might have just kept him to adopt him out. Yeah, he's super friendly. Or should I say he was yeah. super friendly? I hope that's not the case. Oh. Oh, well, you know, I I was gone on vacation. I went to Idaho. I was doing a little skiing and such. Oh, nice. But when I came home, yeah, when I came home, all the porch kitties were here. So so they can, they do all right, uh, you know, for a week without anyone giving them extra food. And I have to tell you, that heat miser was pretty, pretty chubby. So he's getting food somewhere. (laughs) I (laughs) don't know. He's definitely hitting all the houses up. Uh, he can, is. Can like, I tell uh, you one a... little more sad story about Stash? Oh, oh, please, yes. Even the neighbor kitties are looking for him. So his mom is oh, named really? Patches. And Patches actually lives inside the building next door because she was once attacked by a fox. And so her, her paw oh, no. is really messed up. Yeah, and she has a little tracker mm. on her so our neighbor can see where she is. Even Patches is looking for him. And Pretty Kitty, who is Stash's sister has been at my door looking inside, and we think looking for Stash. So something's up. Oh, yeah. Well, hopefully Stash comes back. You'll let us know. Will do. Well, you know, I did mention I went to Idaho, and one of the things I have in Idaho are these hot springs. Okay, that sounds nice, especially today because it's 47 degrees in Dallas, and the weather app, which I never used when I lived in California, told me it was going to be 71, so I wore shorts. Oh, Oops. <laughs> well, that is that is unlucky. But uh, yeah, Texas has the those temperature swings, huh? Yeah. So I go to this uh, hot springs, right? And it's this mountain river that is flowing. And of course, there's snow around, so it's freezing. The, the river is freezing. But apparently, there's this water that flows, I don't know, through the mountains. And that it's hot when it comes out. Oh, so wow. you get these areas where you get this like almost boiling hot water mixing with this freezing cold water and if you like dam it off correctly then you know it feels nice but 
it smells like sulfur. So I was, I was just wondering, like, where does that sulfur smell come from, right? Well, it must come from minerals in the earth, right? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it's, uh, there must be like volcanic activity or something around it. But I guess Idaho is near, uh, what is that? The uh, Yellowstone National Park where they mm-hmm. have the big volcano. Yeah. So it's probably an offshoot of that. Anyway, you sit in there and you like freeze your butt off on one side and you're you're burning your legs on the other side because the hot water comes in. It's, it reminds me of like if you're on the planet Mercury, you yeah. know, you're right at that interface where you're facing the sun and you're burning and you're facing away from the sun and you're freezing. So it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, it sounds awful. Well, it, it was sounds a, neat, it was but a, also terrible. A fun experience, which was great for 10 minutes. <laughs> but it opened the pores on my skin. At least that's what you they look, told me. You look radiant. <laughs> I do. Speaking of radiant, how about we get into some beauty news? Uh, the first story that uh, I saw was from Cosmetics Design. And they were talking about how Consumer demand influences ingredient formulation in product development. And this article is, uh, you know, they did an interview with uh, somebody from uh, a place called Cohora, the platform, the customer relationship management, Cohora. And, and they're all about, they're saying like, hey, you know, cosmetic formulators have to listen to consumers and put in the ingredients that they want. And I think of this and I'm like, if consumers are telling you what ingredients to use, why do you need a chemist? I I just think that's an encroachment on our creativity for formulating. Well, also, I think it causes a lot of issues because as chemists, we actually know what's best for the formulation. And when consumers start to dictate things that don't make sense, it forces chemists into other options that make less sense. And it just yeah. causes a lot of challenges down the road. Preservation is a great example of an arena that's been absolutely destroyed where I know we keep bringing up parabens, but they're they're safe. They're used at low levels. They don't irritate yeah. people. And now we can't use them because of consumer demand. And now we're using less safe preservatives, actually, and less effective preservatives. And yeah. even preservatives yeah. that were effective, we're overusing them. And now they're becoming less effective because organisms are getting used to them. So it's just, I think it's a real conundrum that consumers are telling formulators and brands what to do. I guess when I got into the industry way back in the early 90s, we all, there was always this component of consumers telling us what ingredients to put in. But we called those ingredients claims ingredients. And so you would make a, a shampoo and say you wanted it to be an aloe shampoo, so you just make it green and you put a drop of aloe in you say oh it's aloe shampoo or you do the same you want jojoba shampoo you just make it brown you put a drop of jojoba in there you say it's jojoba shampoo we didn't pay attention to them about like what thickener should you use or what surfactant should you use or preservative we would you know we would just put in good products good ingredients and then the waffle dust is kind of what the uh, consumers we would pay attention to yeah but now the consumers are telling you like Oh, you can't use silicones. You can't use sulfates. And you're just, it's just leading to formulas that are not as good. Exactly. So what do you think the right solution is? Oh, I mean, I think ultimately consumers want products that work. And if marketers have to come up with better marketing stories than the story about what they're not including. Although having said that, I'm a chemist, you know, I formulate. I'm not a marketing genius because... I think of the story of Drunk Elephant, that we talked about, I don't know, a couple episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, two episodes ago. Right. Her whole her whole shtick was avoid these six ingredients. And in 10 years, she made a, uh, you know, $900 million company. So what the hell do I know? Well, I don't think it's going to go away. But I, I do think there has to be this balance of of compromise here. I just posted an article on LinkedIn about... A buyer's dwarf, the Aquaphor, is being sued because they say that their product is preservative-free. And this consumer yeah. wouldn't have bought the product if, had they known it contained sodium ascorbyl phosphate, which is a well-known preservative in the cosmetics industry, which it's not. I digress. Uh, 
But here we are, a brand making a, a claim because consumers don't want preservation in their products and it's biting them in the butt. So I don't know. I don't like where things are headed, Perry. I know. I think I'm hopefully this is like a pendulum kind of thing and where, you know, it's was this way. Now it's going to start swinging back. And, you know, preservatives like uh, parabens, maybe they'll come back in vogue at some point. But ultimately, we need smarter consumers <laughs> because the beauty industry, it has no inclination to fix misinformation. There's just no money in it. There's a lot of money in misinformation, especially in the beauty arena. And I, we can't expect beauty companies to fix the misinformation or the misinformed consumer because they benefit from it. Speaking of misinformation, this next news story, it's not that it spread misinformation, but I think it was total clickbait and I don't like what was going on at all. In the New York Post, a chemist tested Nivea versus La Mer and got shocking results. Whoa, wait, a, a $380 creme de la mer versus the $7 Nivea, they got shocking results? Wait, what were these results? <laughs> well, right, what was this testing? <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, la mer is a very expensive cream. Uh, J-Lo uses it. A lot of celebrities use it. It's sold in high-end stores. And it gets a lot of flack because one of the main ingredients is petrolatum, and people say that's very cheap, and Nivea contains a lot of petrolatum. Ipso facto, they must be the same. So this chemist said, you know what? I'm actually going to take these two back to my lab and compare them. Now, that's all great and fun and that kind of thing. But the test that she did doesn't actually really compare them apples to apples. And it was more like just evaluating a couple things and making an extrapolation yeah. about the results. Of course, she got millions of hits on TikTok. Uh, so... so. You know, there, there's some motivation there, but it is an interesting, it is an interesting experiment where you take a really expensive cosmetic product and you take a cheap one. And I mean, this has been done a lot of times and no kidding, you're going to find these results where, oh, on a blinded basis, you can't tell much difference. And in fact, according to this uh, story, she did a moisturization test or her hydration, she called it a hydration test. She doesn't say exactly what she did, but she says in a hydration test, uh, La Mer actually increased moisture or hydration by 23%, but Nivea increased it by 95%. So if you just went off that information, you would be like, I'm going to go buy this cheap Nivea moisturizer because obviously it's way better than La Mer. But there's two problems with this. The first is moisturization is just one aspect. Right. The second is that even this chemist says, well, the results of the test were probably because Nivea contains a significant quantity of water compared to La Mer. Well, I mean, La Mer probably contains a significant quantity of water too. <laughs> so, but the fact that she even made that claim sort of says to me, she didn't do the test right. Because if you're just testing the water in the product, then it makes no sense here. Well, you're not a big fan of the transepidermal water loss test anyway. Well, only because, you know, look, I've done this test. I was on the claims group when we did tests like this. And you need to control. First of all, you need, to, you need a lot of people uh -huh. to get repeatable data. But you need to control the temperature. You need to control the humidity level. You need the people to sit in a room for eight hours and not get upset or anything, and not, not significantly move. You mean it can't just be two chemists goofing around in a lab and say, hey, you know what, let's do this transepidermal water loss test? Yeah, no, <laughs> not to get any sort of repeatable data. And even when you control all of this stuff, the the repeatability is just not that good. <laughs> so it's just, it's crazy. So I, I see these, these kinds of studies. I don't have much faith in them at all. Um, and... You know, this is true not only of uh, what this chemist did, but when I see like uh, peer-reviewed journals uh, looking at the moisturization level of like glycerin compared to hyaluronic acid, I'm very skeptical of those. I just have done these tests and I know how sensitive the results are based on how well did you rub the product in and did you put enough mm -hmm. in there and did you wait long enough? It's just so many variables. It's really hard to repeat. This chemist also says that they uh, looked at the emulsion under a microscope. And oh, boy. 
that also doesn't really tell you much of anything other than how well the emulsion was formed. It won't have anything to do with the performance benefits claimed uh, with the product. Yeah, not at all. That's that's another, like, I don't know. I would call it a red herring because, yeah, it's of, like, academic interest. But just because one emulsion has smaller particles than another emulsion, it doesn't really tell you much. It tells you nothing about performance. And as far as it might tell you something about stability, but you know what? If they may, if they put the proper acrylic uh, suspending polymers in there, you know, bigger, bigger particles are not going to coalesce and be unstable. So it's not like Nivea has a stability problem, you know. So, so maybe their bigger particles only last three years, whereas maybe La Mer lasts five years. It's like, okay, you're going to use the product up before five years, hopefully. So it's really not a difference at all, even though. You look at it in a microscope, it looks like some difference, but it's not a practical difference. Well, let me give you guys one piece of information that I learned from somebody else in the industry whose company sells an ingredient to the makers of La Mer. So I guess in the legal world, you would call this hearsay. However, I trust sure. this person and I feel like it's a pretty good source of information. So we were talking one day and I made an offhand comment about La Mer, and I told them the story how, you know, I used to work for somebody who did uh, J-Lo's hair and makeup, and you know, we would have to send her all these tubs of La Mer um, when they were going on tour and, and whatnot. And I, I mean, I would go buy these giant tubs to send. And so I would oh, get some man. free, some free La Mer as a result for it. And I was telling my friend, you know, like it was a very nice cream. I just didn't know what was so special about it. And she said, so special about it. She said, we sell them the algae that's used in there, their algae extract that's purported to give these results. And, sure. uh, you know, I, she disclosed the company to me. And it's very, very, very expensive algae products, this company. Yeah. There's tons yeah. of clinical data behind them. And I thought, well, if they're using this algae company, which I think is a very good company, and I think their work is, is really good, yeah. You know, it's not just maybe they're adding it at Swizzle Dust. I don't know. But <laughs> let's just say they were using it at clinically studied levels and they validated the clinical studies that the algae supplier did. That would be pretty cool. And if this is true, if this hearsay is true, then that would give Lemaire a point of difference over Nivea. Yeah. I kind of look at it, I mean, certainly the formulas can be different and the testing that uh, this chemist did, which you know, kudos to her. It was an interesting thing. And she, you know, she's educating consumers. And look, Nivea is going to be fine for most everybody. So so if if you're getting the message out that, hey, don't feel bad about yourself, that you can't afford La Mer and you're just using Nivea, yeah, they're good products. Both of them are. But I kind of look at the difference here as like the difference between, I don't know, a, a Burberry purse and something you might get at Target or something. How about this? An eight-year bur okay. You said Burberry. An eight-year bourbon okay. versus a 25-year bourbon. Wait. Oh, you said bourbon. Yeah, yes. well, you uh, said well, Burberry and immediately bourbon popped into my head. And I'm like, well, there's a huge difference between actually a bourbon with no age statement and a bourbon that's yeah. 25 years old. I would completely agree with it, but chemically there's there's some significant, and you can taste differences, but I think it's more like the purses, right? Because to me, and you know, what do I know about purses? Not, I don't, I don't carry one, but I'm interested. Keep going. I do know that women will spend like, and men, I guess some men will buy this, but they will spend thousands of dollars on a purse uh -huh. that functionally is no different than the twenty dollar one you'll get at Target. However the tailoring, the fabric, the feel, the construction, and the longevity sure. of this purse, you will know the difference. Yeah, no, you, I mean, you probably wouldn't know the difference, but as far as I need something to carry my wallet and my makeup. I need something to moisturize my skin. I get right, what you're saying. Right. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate so you, you trying with that analogy. <laughs> I try. Don't, just don't tell my wife. <laughs> All right, we ready for questions? We are. 
Our first question comes to us from Katie and Patreon. Thank you so much, Katie, for being a Patreon supporter. If you like what we do and you appreciate that we don't have advertisements so we can say kind of whatever we want, uh, that's only because of our patrons who support us. So if you want to support the Beauty Brains, go to patreon.com slash the Beauty Brains and subscribe. Hi, Beauty Brains team. Any thought on the Zuvi Halo hairdryer or infrared dryers in general? Thanks so much for all you do. The Zulu Halo hairdryer? I, I know you love the... We talked about a hairdryer last time, which was like $700. Yeah. You love that one. I mean, yeah, it's pretty special, the, the bioprogramming. It's a lot of BS, but the results speak for itself. Sure. Uh, BS marketing, but the, the product you were a big fan of. So, so now, yes. now I'm curious, did the uh, did, did that company contact you and say, hey, uh, here's a dryer? Wouldn't that be pretty no cool? Luck. No luck. I mean, we need our podcast audience to be a little bigger than that. We need someone to, to drop this podcast onto a CD and slip it under the headquarter doors <laughs> at Bioprogramming. There you go. That was that was last episode. All right, how about this Zuvi Halo hair dryer? I've I've not heard of it, but it apparently uses uh, UV light or infrared light. Infrared light, yeah. I'm familiar with this hair dryer because I was contacted by Allure magazine maybe last year about this because Zuvi has made a huge deal about the technology that they have launched. So I took a look at it for them. And first, before we dive into that, uh, the questions about the Zuby Halo hairdryer, but it's also about infrared dryers in general. The Zuby Halo is an infrared hairdryer. What makes this special? Uh, Perry, do you know how hairdryers work? A conventional, traditional hairdryer. Well, I think you just have a coil that heats up, gets red hot, and then you have a fan that blows that heat, uh, the air over that heat, and that heat transfers to your hair. So is that that what's happening? That's exactly. And then the water can Ah, evaporate from your hair and voila, your hair is dry. An infrared hair dryer has the same process. Heat is passed over your hair. The water evaporates from your hair and your hair dries. But the heat source actually is an infrared light, I guess. I've always called it like an infrared source. But this infrared source turns on and instead of convection, from a coil being generated and wind pushing it over your hair. The infrared source creates these infrared waves, which generate heat, and that is transferred um, to the hair, and then the water dries. So so is it like light waves are, are spreading on your hair, or well, it's you, don't, in, you don't actually see the light, right? You don't, well, you can, if you look into the dryer, see the infrared oh, source turn but on. But you, you're not supposed to look into it, or you'll go blind or something. But, well, don't look into the light, but <laughs> don't, don't look into the it's light. infrared waves. It's part of the, the whole light, the sure. whole spectrum of waves the, within the universe. The so el- electromagnetic spectrum, yeah. Infrared, IR, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Exactly. It's the other side of UV. Other side of UV. So to me, whether it's infrared or a conventional hair dryer, it's a bit tomato tomato for how the hair dries because the actual mechanism sure. is the same: heat passing over hair, water evaporating, but the heat source is a little bit different. So this Zuvi hair dryer is an infrared dryer. There's many of them on the market, but what I found interesting about it is that they say it's a first of its kind. Of course. If you spent millions of dollars launching a new tool, you would say that too. But it uses this infrared energy to dry at top speeds while maintaining lower hair and scalp temperature, which gives you healthier, smoother, shinier hair, all while reducing energy usage by 60%. I can totally get the energy usage reduction because... If you're not using a resistant coil, you don't need as much energy to go through and maybe that... But how does it speed things up? You know, I'm not really sure about that part. But they did say they went through countless iterations. Sure. And they have 100 global patents, uh, allegedly, for this device. And basically, it adjusts the light and wind to fit the room temperature. I'm not sure how it does that. <laughs> Come <And> on. It, <laughs> it has 120 <laughs> layers of titanium coating. It actually sticks a finger in the air... <laughs> And it sees where the wind is blowing. And what? Is... Well, that's what they say, Perry. So anyway, sure, they've done of course, a bunch yeah. of clinical testing, which I also think is interesting because usually when a brand launches a hot tool, 
uh, clinical testing isn't the first and foremost thing in mind. They're usually reserving that for product. But they did a bunch of testing. So they found that using the dryer, they found that compared to traditional hair dryers, the internal hair moisture is in t- retained by 109% more, which is pretty incredible. 100% more? 109% more, yeah. I'm just trying to do the math there. So if the internal moisture is 3% and then it's 6%, then it saves 100%. I- I just, I just, I don't know what that really means practically. Well, I think that they liked it was over a hundred. That seemed really impressive, so they used it. But generally, if you sure. have internal hair moisture, uh, crystal crystalline water that's in the hair, your hair tends yeah. to feel stiffer. So I'm a little confused why they would use this claim. They also claim that your hair is 17% smoother, nine percent okay. stronger, and 37 percent shinier after use. Now, they didn't say if that test was compared to a conventional hair dryer or just in using their dryer alone. Um, Any hair dryer would make hair shinier if it made the hair straighter, that's for sure. Uh, But the other interesting aspect was they said it holds dye 57% longer within the hair. And how would it do that? Well, they didn't really go into the technology on that. All right, but they did say that, okay, this is color safe. Um, I haven't seen any peer-reviewed literature particularly highlighting how infrared-powered devices can preserve hair color. I do know that infrared, in terms of your natural melanin um, pigment, doesn't do anything. It's So if you just held an infrared dryer at your hair all day long yeah. and your hair was naturally colored, meaning it was the color it came out of your head, uh, it's not going to degrade any of your melanin pigment. So, you know, I was interested to know why um, it's better because generally with a traditional hair dryer, heat will degrade dyes. This is still emitting heat. It's just from a different source. Um, however, it does say the dryer uses lower heat, so maybe it's lower heat than traditional hair dryers, and that's how it, how it did. I did get to take a look at the study So when we measure color differences, we measure it in terms of delta E, which tells you how different the color is and how light or dark the color got. And usually with a delta E less than three, uh, most consumers won't notice a difference. Some consumers can notice a delta E less than two, and hardly any people would notice a difference if the delta E was less than one. Their study did record a delta E less than one. So therefore the color shift in using the hair device uh, was extremely minimal. And I don't think anyone would notice a difference when using their dryer. Now that being said, is this a reason to go get it? I don't know how special it is otherwise. I know. And I'd say probably not. It just seems like a lot of jiggery pokery, as they say, with like, you know, it's a heat, it's a different heat source, but it's still heat, it's still air blowing on your thing, and it's still water evaporating from your hair. There's not a lot of technology differencing you can do there, as far as I can see, right? Well, in a world of Dysons and bioprogramming blow dryers, it's hard to set yourself apart. Exactly. It's, and that, I think that's the story of cosmetics in general. It's It's really hard to set yourself apart for any personal care product, but setting yourself apart in a hairdryer, it's pretty much blow hot air onto your hair and the water evaporates. And then everything else is just marketing, right? As, as far as I can tell, if you did this on, a, if you did testing this on a blinded basis, even these color tests and such with the hairdryer is going to, it's not going to make that much difference. I just can't imagine that's true. There was one interesting claim about their technology that, I thought needed a little more talking about. And they actually, in addition to the infrared, uh, they use light to help dry the hair as well. That's part of the technology. And they have removed the UV portion of that spectrum out of the device that is emitting everything. And that's actually really good news because UV light is incredibly damaging to the hair fiber. However, visible light is terrible for hair too. And the visible light spectrum is actually responsible for degrading hair lipids and can damage the cuticle and the cortex. So I would be interested to know what 
exact wavelengths they're employing in this light spectrum they're talking about. <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking, I'm just imagining somebody taking a flashlight and a fan and trying to dry their, their hair. I, I don't think it's, I don't think that's What if that work. was the, the control in the study? <laughs> that probably was, right? Or just <laughs> take a flashlight and a fan <laughs> compared to our hair dryer. I don't. Well, Katie, I hope that helps. I don't know if the Zuby Halo hair dryer is worth it. I guess you would have to try it. Um, and infrared dryers, they're they're just okay. So as long as you have a dryer that, to me, the most important thing about a dryer is that it's light. You want to use it. You can control the heat settings, and it doesn't have the cool shot button right in the way of the handle where you hit it all the time while you're blow drying your hair. Those are the most important things. And it doesn't cost $750 like the Boat Champ or whatever that one we talked about last time. Oh, goodness. Let's go to the next question. Hello, Valerie and Perry and the porch kitties, except Stash. Ah. (laughs) My question today is I have recently purchased a facial firming lotion from the brand Equate, which is known as the Walmart brand. On the jar, it states that it is comparable to Olay Skin Firming Cream, and I wanted to know if they are the same or similar because Equate makes many skincare products which are comparable to well-known brand products. Obviously, Equate's way cheaper than the other name brand products go for. Thank you. I enjoy the show and look forward to it. Zvana. Well, thank you for that question. I love this question because we can talk about store brands and how do these store brands even exist and you know what's their marketing strategy? Well, a brand like Equate is the Walmart brand and essentially Equate has this strategy where they say, okay, let's look at a product that sells a lot and we'll just copy them. A product that they sell a lot of. Right. They have the data. They don't have to figure it out. Right. <laughs> and they say, you know what? Let's copy it. Bing, bang, boom. We put our own version out that is equal or equate. And we sell it for cheaper because we can. Now, this is essentially the generic strategy. Back in the day, they were black and white packaging. It just said bread or it said cereal. Yeah. It was a simple packaging. And that was true. You could make products using simple packaging, because packaging really is one of the highest prices things when you buy a cosmetic product. When I made my own line of products, the packaging cost a dollar a bottle, which was not expensive. And the the chemicals that went in there, like the actual formula that you use, it costs like 50 cents a bottle. So packaging actually costs twice as much. And Beyonce's sacred line, I bet you for sure her packaging, which is completely custom, very unique shapes, very unique texture, that probably, well, I've actually tried the products. We'll save it for the next show. But that is probably four times the cost of the products, if not five. Right. Okay, let's get to this equate, though. So Walmart sells a lot of stuff. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of muscle in, well, pretty much every industry. (laughs) Yeah. But... (laughs) In the cosmetic industry, they have a lot of a lot. They throw away a lot of weight around because they sell a lot of products. I remember when I was working at Alberto Culver, Walmart made up about sixty percent of our sales. So if we were going to launch a new product, we would first go to Walmart before we actually even made the product, and we'd say, "Hey, here's an idea we have." And if the buyer at Walmart thought it was the dumb idea and they were going to buy it, we just didn't do it. But they love the idea of strawberries and cream. Right. <laughs> they did like that one. But that is the that is the power that Walmart has. And so when Walmart looks at which products are selling well, they say, oh, you know, Pantene's selling well, Olay's selling well, you know, Suave is selling well. Let's just do a copy of that. We'll sell it for cheaper. And if you look at their packaging, the packaging does isn't a direct copy, but it sure does emulate that. <laughs> And I would say Walmart's not the only one who does it. Uh, In the United States here, we have Walgreens. Walgreens has, they'll put like Pantene there, and then right next to it is another white bottle, which is the Walgreens brand. But it looks the same, but it doesn't say Pantene. It says Walgreens. Target has their Up and Up brand. Okay, Target does the same thing. So you can see clearly there is some money to be made by these retailers for doing this. And so let's talk about the formulas. How different are these formulas, Valerie? What's your thought on that? I think they're honestly probably very similar. 
I don't want to say the same because we just had this conversation where I think Lemaire is probably a little different than Nivea, maybe close, yeah. but different. Right. But I really sure. think in the case of a simple facial lotion like this, I think a chemist who was working for whether it's a contract manufacturer producing the, you know, this Equate brand for Walmart or someone uh-huh. internally, I don't know how they do the R&D, but they took a look at the Olay ingredient deck and said, I can duplicate this. And so for the most right. part, they probably got all the ingredients in the right order. They probably feel very similar. The difference may be a brand like Olay has independent researchers. Uh, they, you know, they come from a very big corporate conglomerate. And so they've done a lot of raw material validation. They've made sure that from their active ingredients, the ingredient supplier um, makes a claim about an ingredient. The people at Olay may validate whatever that raw material supplier is telling them is true. And then they may say, well, ingredient supplier says it works at half a percent, but does it still work at 0.4%? And they may validate that. They may also be doing a lot of clinical testing to ensure they can support the claims that they want to make. I don't know if the Equate brand is doing that unless they've mimicked the claims. I would imagine that on a body lotion, they probably wouldn't go through that, but maybe on a facial lotion, they would. So I would say from that perspective, the development is a little different, but would a consumer notice a difference at the end of the day? I don't think so. It's not very difficult when you have the ingredient list of formulas. And it's correct. Right. And it's correct. And and if you're looking at a big company, they're going to put out the correct things because it's going through their legal department and their regulatory department. Now, if it's a small company, you know, you know, you never know. But the big companies definitely the ingredient lists are correct. So if you're a chemist of any worth, a formulator of any worth, you can take an ingredient list and a sample of that product. You're going to characterize the pH, the viscosity. The, you could duplicate the foaming. You could pretty much duplicate that formula. Can you do it for less expensive than P&G does? Well, you, you probably can't. P&G probably makes things pretty cheaply because they, they buy a lot of chemicals. However, Walmart can certainly make things uh, the same price as P&G. And P&G does not want to sell products that are really cheap. So even if it costs them... A dollar to make a bottle. They don't want to sell that for two dollars. They want to sell it for you know ten dollars or something like that. Whereas Walmart can make the same thing. Maybe Walmart costs them two dollars to make the thing that P and G can do for a dollar. So then they can sell it for seven dollars and undercut the price there. And as far as the performance go, if they have good chemists at a contract manufacturer, you can pretty much copy a formula as far as a consumer can tell initially anyway as well as anybody. The only place that you can really fall down with formulating is you can't always copy the fragrance because often fragrance houses make these customized fragrances that smell a certain way and they don't se- they won't sell a fragrance to another uh, company because they'll give exclusive rights of that fragrance. And so it might not smell exactly the same and the smell of a product has a huge impact on how you think it works. You could take right. exactly the same formulas, and if it doesn't smell the same, you will report that they're different in stuff like foaming, uh, moisturization, spreadability, all of those factors that have no impact, the fragrance has no real impact, but psychologically, it can feel different. And so, does Equate, can Equate match Olay? I would say absolutely it could. I don't know if it does. I haven't tested them, but... Uh, you know, there's no reason it couldn't. And so these brands are a little bit parasitic, whereas they're just taking the success of a brand that's already out there and trying to make, trying to undercut their price. On the other hand, they're also providing a service because, you know, if you don't have a lot of money to buy uh, personal care products, (laughs) these are good products to use. So if you like the way Equate works if you like the price of Equate, as far as performance goes, it's probably going to work as well as Olay. I agree. And there goes our Olay sponsorship. <laughs> well, Olay products are nice, too. You know, they have a specific they smell. It's very nostalgic. But, sure. you know, if you if you want to save money and have something that's probably, you know, just as nice, and there's nothing wrong with that. 
Absolutely. And that's why if you're buying a Kate Spade purse, you can just go to Target and get the $25 No, Target I don't think purse. it works like that. Say- <laughs> it does. All right, let's go to the next question. This question comes from Kishna. She says, hello, Valerie and Perry. Thank you for the great podcast and your hard work. Here's my question for today. How do you properly layer a moisturizer, a sunscreen, and a foundation to avoid flakiness? Thanks. Uh, what's this flakiness she's talking about? It's like, I guess the foundation will flake off? No. Well, it could be two things. Okay. One, the dry skin could be flaky underneath all of these products. And so regardless of what you put on, whether it's one of these, three of these, especially with foundation, you want to make sure that your skin is exfoliated and not at all dry because the foundation will settle into the cracks on your skin and you will look very flaky or you'll start to notice the flakes on your skin more because of the color that's present. So if you are not working an exfoliant into your weekly routine and properly moisturizing through the week, and you want to wear a foundation, I highly encourage you to do so. The other th- thing I recommend, not related to flakiness, but sometimes when you wear a foundation, a lot of the hairs, uh, vellus hairs, which are those little white tiny hairs on your skin will pop up and also sure. give the illusion of flakiness a little bit. Um, you can shave those. So you basically just take a, a razor that you may use for your legs or your underarms and just uh, shave the skin on your face, being careful to avoid the corners of the eyebrows. Valerie, if people are shaving their face, isn't that going to make their hair grow back thicker? No, that's a myth. But anyway, <laughs> that is a myth. Yes. shaving the vellus hairs will absolutely help with the appearance of the foundation on your skin. But the flakiness I suspect Cassinia is talking about has to do with products pilling on top of each other. Ah, so how are you going to prevent this kind of pilling? Well, pilling occurs when you have either an excessive amount of polymer in a product and it lays flat on the skin and once all of the other ingredients flash away off the skin either through evaporation or absorption or just wicking away the polymer that's left in the product may start to pill once you uh, start rubbing it and it will appear flaky additionally if you're layering products that have these polymers over top of one another For example, your moisturizer has a polymer, your sunscreen has a polymer, your foundation has a polymer. Everything's got a polymer, yeah. These polymers will interact with each other and definitely look like flaky skin when it's actually just polymer-polymer interaction. So either too much or uh, combinations of conflicting ones or too many of them. Xanthan gum is famous for this. I think it pills really crazily. A lot of people don't like it, especially if you have xanthan gum that was used to thicken the water phase of your moisturizer. Your sunscreen for sure has a polymer in it because it wants to lay those sunscreen actives flat. It has to, yeah. It has to, yeah, to get that SPF value. So I would look for products that don't have polymers in all of them. So for example, look for a xanthan gum-free moisturizer um, Carbaber is another polymer that does this. Guar gum is another polymer that does this. Can you think of anything else? Uh, hydroxyethylcellulose or the cellulose polymers. Yeah. Yeah. These there, are, there's a variety of them. Yeah. Yeah. These are natural polymers that will occur. So I would say look for products that when you're layering them, only one of them can have the polymer and then the others can. That should help minimize some of the flakiness. Let's talk about the order in which you put them on. I'm just looking at these things, and I'm thinking the order should be the moisturizer first, uh-huh. then maybe the sunscreen, and then the foundation on top of that. What do you think of the order? I agree with the order. The moisturizer ideally is going to absorb into your skin, into your into the lower you know lower layer, so it's not going to have a lot on top. The sunscreen is definitely going to sit on top of definitely. your skin. Yeah, that's just how it works. And then, of course, the foundation has to sit on top of your skin to get the color, right? You don't want it to absorb in because then it's not giving you the color. So I think that's kind of the order that you would have to do. Yeah, or also uh, to help mitigate this flakiness issue, just use a sunscreen that's pretty moisturizing. 
There you go. And then you don't need to use all three of those. Yeah, because generally foundations don't have these synthetic polymers. I mean, they have some synthetic polymers that help with the silicones, but I don't know sure, a whole right. lot of foundations that use these natural gums that tend to do a lot of the pilling. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. If you're going to use a sunscreen, you probably don't need that moisturizer first. You know, my wife loves, and she hates herself for loving it, the uh, Super Goop sunscreen. Oh, I hate myself for loving that, too. Right? <laughs> and she's like, I don't want to like it, but it's really good. <laughs> oh, wow. I'll have to, I think I've probably checked it out before, but the problem is we try so many products, I forget course, about them. Yeah. I mean, like two years ago, I was obsessed with Kula, the sun drops. You know, I was uh -huh. obsessed with Elta MD, and then now I'm like, oh, I like this prequel one, which... Um, I was gifted. I didn't go buy it, but you just move on. And so maybe I'll move on to Supergroup next. You know what sunscreen I use? The one that's been in your golf bag for four years. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, the Equate brand. Really? Oh, nice. Because <laughs> like, yeah. it was the cheapest one. It was number 50 or something. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so funny. And we've come full circle to the final question. Final question. Hi, Beauty Brains. I'm a lash extension instructor, and I've offered our Cosmetology Association to look into the safety of UV LED lash extension systems. I could really only find statements assuring their safety on brands' websites. Of course, a couple articles mention the obvious potential damage of UV light on skin and eyes, but I think some use LED and are purportedly safe. Any insight, pun intended, would be great. It should go without saying, I love your podcast, and I recommend it to everyone who will listen. Thanks. Meow, meow, meow. Melissa. Well, thank you, Melissa, for that. The meows were the kitty emojis with the eyes. Sure, the, the kitty emojis. Yeah, we are all kitties all the time. <laughs> oh, hope Stash comes back. All right. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't know about these UV light lash extensions, but it really reminded me of the UV curing nail polishes yeah so gel nail polish right so i gotta figure it's some sort of polymer that is uv light uh, actually when you have a polymer you you can put it on skin or hair and then a uv light can help to uh, increase the polymerization reaction uh -huh. and the longer the polymer and it sticks better and so that's probably how these lash extension systems work here well i don't know if you've ever had artificial eyelashes perry but some odd uh, <laughs> Not just <that> <laughs> checking but sometimes i've had to wear them and typically the glues that are used to adhese the either the individual lashes or an entire strip of lashes are all acrylate based which makes sense that uv light would work to cure them at a much faster rate so acrylate essentially it's a glue and it just sticks there and then when you cure it then the glue kind of dries when it's when it's still sticky uh, so let me get this so artificial eyelashes so how do you take them off you gotta put a special liquid on it to well, break it down or something much like you would take a styling polymer off of your hair you would uh wash your eyelashes okay and some of the glues are actually very strong and will withstand many washes uh, but some of right. them like if you're just doing like a little daytime use for example i was doing recordings for a big salon brand the other day and the makeup artist put a fake lash strip on me. Those sure. came off right when I went to wash my face back at the hotel. So they were like post-it notes, right? <laughs> I wore the post-it note of lashes, yes. <laughs> you did, you did. Oh well, gosh. I don't think these UV light extensions are the post-it note ones because these things probably stay on pretty well. But I did look at the, the Opal LED UV light lash extensive system, and they claim that they are FDA approved. And so what that means is that the FDA is not saying these are good to use. All they are saying is that they are safe to use. So you're not going to go blinded or something if somebody is putting this on you. So I guess part of the answer to that question is at least some of these treatments are, at least for the UV por or the, uh, the UV light portion, are safe enough to use. Well, just like the nail curing lamps, when you're getting a gel manicure, the FDA views those as very low risk to use when they're used as directed by the label. And they haven't had any reports of burns or skin cancer from the lamps. And the amount of UV that you're being exposed to 
is so minimal that you don't have anything to worry about. Now, if you were doing this all day, every single day, that would definitely be a different story. But you're doing this once every three to six weeks just to get your um, eyelashes redone. You should be fine. The lash technician also shouldn't have to worry because the UV light is being very directed and centered towards the guest's eye. Now, speaking of the eye, UV light is very terrible for the eye, but your eyelid um, should be closed and you should be closing your eyes pretty tight for the short duration that the lamp has to remain on your eye. This certainly seems a safer thing than what my former sister-in-law used to do where she would take hair dye and dye her eyelashes. Oh, you should never put dye on your eyelashes. Oh my goodness. No. Now, some of these systems are actually LED based and LED light is pretty safe to use, um, even for your skin, for your eyeballs. So from that perspective, if it were LED, probably better than UV if you could go that route. Yeah, so I think what you're going to find is that overall, the companies that are doing this have probably gone through the FDA system and they've been at least determined safe. That doesn't mean they're necessarily effective, but if they weren't effective, would people still be offering these things? So there's at least there's a theoretical reason why they would work and they make the glues uh, dry faster. There you have it. Speaking of faster, do you hear that music? Oh, I thought that was Stash calling me. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Hey, if you get a chance, can you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review? That's going to help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Speaking of questions, if you have one, we'd love to hear your voice on the show. We haven't had any audio questions for a while. It's really easy to do. You know what? Uh... I have to say, I had a couple of audio questions. I'm going to include them next time. So, yes, we get them. So, oh, yes. good. Okay, well, two isn't a lot based on how many episodes we have. So we would love that more. Just record it on your we smartphone. Work. Very easy to do. Email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. And the Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. That's how we keep the show running without the ads. If you want to support the show, get higher priority to your questions answered. And also, you can get a transcript of the show. Go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe at any level. Don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. We have a Facebook page and a TikTok. You know, we got to do like a TikTok where we get 4 million followers. Uh, have you ever compared uh, a Kate Spade purse to a Target purse? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe that'll viral. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be greedy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens. There used to be. A porch kitty And every morning she would come And get some food from me But then I went on vacation She didn't know if I was ever coming back And she's gone she no longer visits me she hit the road just to see what she could see not coming back and it's a tragedy that porch kitty no longer visits